0: Good evening, good evening, and welcome. I'm Mary Wood for the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. It's my pleasure to be here with you this evening in the green room of the Veterans Building in San Francisco, as well as with you who may be listening to this program at a later date. So welcome to this Points of View program. It's Wednesday, February 13th, It's 2013. This Points of View Lecture Series is produced by the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education, along with a lot of other programming. This is directed by Charles Chip McNeil and managed by Adult Education Coordinator Cecilia Beam. I encourage you, as always, to go to our website, sfballet.org, where you can Catch all of the programming. You can find these lectures have been archived as podcasts. You can check on the ones you've missed. You can re-listen to ones you enjoyed. And there are lots of news items and updates of exciting things that are happening, not only on the stage but out in the community, to assist us in engaging you in the life of San Francisco Ballet. I particularly want to call your attention to some of our special programming. As you know, we always have a visiting scholar this season. That is Dr. Tim Scholl, who is a specialist in Russian literature and Russian dance. And he will be with us here in our points of view for Program 5. I believe that's March 27th. He's also participating in three additional lectures that have receptions attached to them. You can read about them in your program. I hope everybody has one of these. And if you open it to the inside, that information is on your far right side. So do check that out, and do start signing up, because these things are bound to fill up. This evening, we have the extraordinary opportunity to take an in-depth look at the ballet Nijinsky, which begins its week-long run this evening. We will learn something about the remarkable dancer, Vaslav Nijinsky, who inspired the piece— We will learn something about the Hamburg Ballet Company because it's that company that is performing the piece. And best of all, we will learn something about its artistic director, John Neumeier, who choreographed the work for his company some 12 years ago. In addition, we'll have the opportunity to go behind the scenes to learn a little bit about I'm calling it the science of moving an entity as huge as a ballet company from one place to the next. Because tonight is opening night for this production, and Mr. Neumeyer's most important place is with his dancers in the opera house, we're going to let him leave us at about 6.30 on the dot. And then, I'm delighted to let you know that we will have some time to be in conversation with San Francisco Ballet's company manager, Lauren Chadwick, and she will more than be able to give us behind-the-scenes and dramatic, colorful saga of a touring company. There was a reason why I didn't want to have a podium, but you can see that it does give me a little handicap. Um, Most average citizens can identify Vaslav Nijinsky as a great dancer from some time in history. Most reasonably knowledgeable dance lovers can describe Nijinsky as a Russian dancer from the early 20th century, known for a prodigious technique. They may even know him as a choreographer of innovative and challenging work. The more knowledgeable dance aficionado will know that Nijinsky, the technician, had extraordinary amplitude in his jumping, that he had an uncanny ability to inhabit the characters that he portrayed, and will know that his choreographed works included Afternoon of a Fawn and Rite of Spring, which were associated with great scandal, that his private life was fraught, comes across as soap opera and that he succumbed to schizophrenia and died after over 20 years in mental institutions. The Hamburg Ballet Company, performing in San Francisco as our guests over this next week, can date its ancestry to the 17th century, from which time... Dance and its companion theatrical art opera have been an important element in the artistic environment of most European cities and certainly of Hamburg. The Hamburg Ballet has been shaped over the past 40 years by artistic director John Neumeyer. He was raised and trained in the American Midwest before studying in Copenhagen and at the Royal School of Ballet in England. He was associated with first the Stuttgart and then the Frankfurt ballet companies before beginning his long tenure with the Hamburg Ballet. Mr. Neumeyer discloses a lifelong passion for Václav Nijinsky and has poured this passion into the theatrical piece we will see tonight and throughout the coming week. We're fortunate to be able to hear about it from Mr. Neumeyer himself. So please welcome John Newmeyer. Welcome and thank you so much for giving us this time this evening. I know it's very exciting to have such a large group of dancers be doing such an important work and that you have been doing a lot of work and have more yet to do this evening. We are familiar with your work because we saw The Little Mermaid. We've seen it in the theater and we've seen it on film. What some of this audience may not be aware is that some of our dancers performed with your company last summer in Hamburg. I'm not exactly sure where to start, but I think what I'd like to start with is asking you how an up-and-coming training dancer like yourself was attracted to the schools and theaters of Europe. What was the American dance scene like 50-some years ago? and what drew you to Across the Pond.
1: Yeah, I think it was what the dance scene at that time looked like, most of all. Uh, It was not at all like it was today. Um, The the two major companies, American Ballet Theatre, which was at that time called Ballet Theatre, and the New York City Ballet, were more or less the only companies that we really heard about at that time. And at the time, I was about to finish my career, my my studies, not my career, um, the uh, ballet theater was closed. So I um, I was very ambitious to get the best education that I could. And I asked at one point a dancer from the New York City Ballet, who is the best teacher for men? Uh, This dancer answered Vera Volkova, Vera Volkova, who was at that time teaching the Royal Danish Ballet. So my ambition was to go to study with Vera Volkova at the Royal Danish Ballet. After I had planned and and, and set my goal uh, as this, I realized that I could not actually study in Copenhagen at that time. Restrictions, there was no Europe at that time. And I could not, as an American, study in the school. So I went to the Royal Roelbein School in London and communicated with Madame Volkova and arranged to go during my school breaks, uh, Easter and so on. And, and so I met one of the most influential people in my career, who was Vera Volkova. It was an interesting story that at the end of that year, because I had imagined I would study one year and then return to the United States, um, I was, uh, th- there came into my class on one day, a very beautiful woman with dark black hair and a handsome gentleman, and I realized, or was told that they were from the Stuttgart Ballet. After this class, I was informed by my teacher that I could join this company. However, Madame de Valois, Annette de Valois, was the director of the Royal Ballet at this time. She had coached me in a performance for the school, and she liked me very much. And she also asked me what I was going to do. I said I had to go back to America. She said, where will you go? I said, I don't know, um, ballet theater or New York City Ballet. She said, you must go to George, meaning, of course, George Balanchine. I said, okay, fine. She said, we are going on a tour and I will speak with George about you. So I thought that's very nice. Um, So she went on a tour. In the meantime came these people watching me, offering me a job. And I said, I I really can't say anything until Madame, as we called her, uh, returns from America. She returned. the the British are not the most outgoing and warm people, particularly at this time, and particularly, I suppose, to to students in a school. So although I had passed her many times in the hallway, she never mentioned anything about George. So I said I uh, arranged to sign the contract in Stuttgart. Also, I think because I had an instinctive feeling that I would like to stay a little longer in Europe, not only because of dance... But also, I think, because of the entire culture, European culture, I was very interested in uh, Italian Renaissance painting. And I thought, you know, Stuttgart is, is certainly closer to Florence than Chicago is. So I perhaps I should stay another year. And interestingly enough, a few days later, I did meet in the hallway she stopped me and said oh by the way I have spoken with Mr. Balanchine and you can go to New York next year but I was very correct in these days and, and I said well I, I can't do that I have already signed a contract and I'm going to Stuttgart so I thought I was going to Stuttgart to stay in Germany for one year
0: and let's see 49 years later Here you are. Um, When did you begin to make dances and how did you transition to making dances? Um, Did you continue to perform yourself in this time of beginning to make dances? Yes.
1: I I think that I always thought creatively about dance. I don't think there was really a moment when there was a change or a shift or a transition. I think that from the beginning, I always had my own ideas. I, I really liked very much to to move myself in a very special way. I liked not only that, the the challenge of working with groups of people. So the, the first, apparently, I have forgotten this, but apparently when I was in high school, I did do some sort of choreography. I don't know what that was like. Uh, but I, I happened to read in a yearbook, you know, in, how, in America, how we have these yearbooks and people write dedications and things that someone wrote, you know, it was so wonderful working you on the, working with you on this dance, blah, 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 which I did. Uh, so I guess I was already then kind of, you know, telling people what they should do. And I did continue this when I was at the university. I was at Marquette University which in Milwaukee has a fantastic, had a, at that time a fa- fantastic theater department with a wonderful Jesuit priest who was the director and who actually was the absolute most important person in giving my life a, a true direction. So it was in this theater, which was called Teatro Maria, that I did the first choreographies. But, however, when I went to London, I had this idea that I had to, um, because I believed that the classical dance, and I still believe that, is the most difficult, exacting, and universal training for the body, and that I must dedicate myself completely to that without thinking in any way creatively. And so at that moment, I stopped thinking about doing any kind of choreography, and only concentrated on myself, which was a great mistake.
0: I want to be sure that we have time to really talk about this passion that you have expressed, um, a kind of a lifelong passion for the man and the life and the work of Vaslav Nijinsky. So um, let's make all of these threads come together in your making dances and how Nijinsky wove himself through your life to this dance
1: I think it was something that happened very early because as I mentioned I was born in Milwaukee uh, Milwaukee at this time did not have a resident ballet company it did not have a major ballet school and all, I was very young and felt uh, that I felt instinctively that dance was a part of my life but I didn't really know what it was and in order to get some sort of evidence about what this mysterious thing might be, I went to the library. And at the, this neighborhood library there were f- probably five books about dance, one of which was called The Tragedy of Nijinsky. And I took this book and I, I read it and was so fascinated because until that time I had seen a few ballet performances, but I saw them from a very distant perspective. The highest possible, cheapest tickets are possible, looking down at a little box uh, of of a wonderful, magical world, which I had no idea how I could become a part of. In reading the book about Nijinsky, I felt that I was reading about a great artist, but at the same time, a human being. And I think it is the humanity of Nijinsky that has stayed with me, that has haunted me, that has been responsible for the uh, enormous collection I have put together, uh, and and in the end, I suppose, for the work that you, I hope, will be seeing tonight or at some time during this week.
0: We have some images. I don't know if you want to try to crane your neck or if you can even see them in the mirror at the back there. Um, images from the ballet. We know because... I positive that most of us have seen The Little Mermaid and we know that you have created any number of narrative pieces. Um, do you describe this as a narrative piece or would you say something else about it? And I'm just going to let these go a little bit so we okay. can see.
1: Yes, please. Um, well, I would say that for me, if we're speaking about narrative or uh, story ballet or dramatic ballet, I don't really see any difference because for me, the instrument the subject of ballet, is the human being. The human being, unless you put a box around it, is always human, and therefore it is not abstract. So the human being on the stage is already dramatic. If there is a music playing, and he is moving either with that music or against that music or protesting about that music, there is a drama. Um, If there are two people, you already have a relationship. If they even if they ignore each other, this is a drama. And so for me, I never think this is a dramatic ballet and this is not a dramatic ballet. For me, the the basis of a ballet, the point from which I start, is an emotional situation. It can be that the story, if we want to use that word, that you see could not be expressed in words. Because I believe that although I create dramatic ballets, um, it, it is not something that we understand. It is something that we experience in the sense that we experience a dream. We do not understand our dream, but we know that we are frightened, or we know that we are desperately in love. We know that we are lost these are emotions that are so clear and I think that this is the way I would hope that people watch ballet. That is seeing the experience of other human beings who have the same instrument that I do and able to read their reactions and their possibilities through that which is put in front of you.
0: Um, Let's see. Let's look at the we don't have terribly many pictures, but just so that the folks can see, these are just some ideas of things that are going to appear before you when you see the ballet. I'm curious about the rings.
1: I could, I mean, I could just speak in a sense of the about the structure of the ballet because I you know, I never thought I would do a ballet about Nijinsky because I felt I knew too much. If you stand too close to something, it's very difficult to to actually filter out and focus upon something that is, that has not been said before or that has not been said in the same way or within the same means before. Uh, but as I think I mentioned, I have a very, very large collection of Nizhinsky material, meaning drawings and paintings of him, documents about him, sculptures in bronze or porcelain or whatever, uh, memorabilia, letters, and so on so on, which I have collected over the years since that very first book, uh, The Tragedy of Nizhinsky. Uh, I had never lent any of these objects, although there had been requests, because I felt that I, I wanted to stay living in them. They were not for me... Uh, works of art that w- would be in a museum—they were actually part of my life. Uh, but in two thousand, which was the fiftieth anniversary of the death of Nijinsky, there was going to be a very important, a major exhibition at the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, at the Dance Museum in Stockholm, and I insisted also in the museum in Hamburg. And for this occasion, I thought it would be good. To share these works and this this particularly beautiful information about this man, at the same time thinking that my homage to him, however, should really be a work, and that I would choreograph a work at that point, not really knowing what it might be like, what shape or form it might have. I think that the most important, um, uh, the most important. First step was to, to to decide on the music. The eleventh symphony of Dmitri Shostakovich seemed to me absolutely perfect to describe his inner life, the conflict, the um, the dramatic human situations that that occurred in his life so this was the first piece then in researching the, his final dance which happened on the 19th of January 1919 at 5 o'clock in the afternoon in the Souvrette House, which is a hotel famous hotel in Switzerland's San Moritz um, in researching this moment I, there, are, there was evidence of what music was actually played which was a particular prelude by Chopin and some music by Schumann at the beginning. So I decided that this moment in time, which was such a deciding moment in his life, which was the last time that he danced publicly, would be the starting out point and basically the setting of the ballet, that everything happens during this performance within his... Thoughts, his memories, his desires, his um, his fears, all put together in this room. So, Shostakovich was the inner life of Nizhinsky, but at the same time, there is so much that we know about the Belarus, the the outer life, the very exotic, exciting uh, time of the Ballet Russe, which started in uh, 1909 with the first performance in, in Paris and, and continued until 2000, until 1929. And I, so I needed a music that would also give me the chance to say something about this outer life. And I decided to take one very famous music which belongs to this period, which is Rimsky-Korsikov's score for the ballet, Cherizade, not do the ballet Sherazade but try to show certain aspects of his life in, in, within this framework. So the ballet begins in, during his last dance. As you come to the performance, you may be shocked or confused uh, because there are people who enter and they are speaking, they are not dancing. Um, you, you don't quite know where you have landed. Uh, perhaps you're in the wrong theater or whatever. Uh, but eventually there will be dance and then it will continue for quite a long time. <laughs> but uh, during this performance, he Nijinsky, who is, who is giving this performance which he has called My Wedding with God, very important, a very important philosophical idea for him, He believes that he sees his mentor Diaghilev, who was absolutely central to his life in many, many ways, in the audience. This is then the jumping off point for the fact that he he remembers so many things that happened to him. His personality at this point, which was... Enormous, because if you have researched or read about Nijinsky, if if you read, you know, a number of books, you will see or read about a number of different people in these different roles: the androgynous character in the Spirit of the Rose, the the uh, sensuous, erotic fawn or the golden slave uh, who is described as a panther, a snake uh, many 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 descriptions so I felt that it was also interesting to break up his personality into other dancers because he was someone who was a different person for many people who who, who knew him so you will see during the first part uh, these situations, his roles but also the important people in his life uh, his mentor, Diaghilev, his sister, Bronislava, who was slightly younger than he was, who danced with him, who continued choreography even after he uh, was mentally ill. His older brother, Stanislav, uh, about whom we know so little because during the revolution he was just simply lost. He was uh, extremely mentally ill. And it was also something which haunted Vaslav Nijinsky's life this this image of his brother who was lost to him and and then of course his wife Romola who really pursued him after she had seen a performance of his in Hungary she was hungarian and felt that this was the man of her life so in the first part we have these fragments of his outer world in the second part we go into his inner life, I would say. We have this image of the two rings. Um, He was fascinated by the form of the circle here. Um, in, In the beginning of this section, he steps through the circles, in a sense stepping into an interior life. And this part of the body is much Darker is much more monochromatic, it is mostly gray. Um, and we see in this, I think the elements which actually set off his mental illness uh, he was schizophrenic from birth, certainly it was a genetic condition, but I think it was the, the outbreak in 1919 was certainly triggered by his reaction to the brutality and cruelty. Of the First World War, which he had, which he read about, and which absolutely um, devastated him, uh, the the fact that he could not dance. His wife insisted on being in a neutral country. They lived in San Moritz, which is a beautiful uh, mountain place, but certainly not the most exciting place for an artist. And I think the fact that his wife was certainly. Uh, in untrue to him, was, 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 uh, was not faithful to him, was having an affair. And I think that these were the things that, that eventually caused his nervous breakdown. In the end, we, we see that Nijinsky believed that he was not mad, that it was the world that was mad. The world that could not stop the First World War. So, in the the final images of the ballet, are of a world which has truly gone mad. And his last dance um, consists also of—we don't have any pictures of that. I think of he. We we know this from from reports that he spread two long uh, lengths of fabric in the form of a cross and said that he would now dance the war. And this is how the ballet ends.
0: Um, You could say an amazing amount more. I think you have brilliantly brought yourself to the end of the time that you have set for yourself. I wish that we could hear so much more. I want to hear about the dancing and the dancers, but we will see it.
1: I just would like to say one thing. Okay. Uh, please uh, do not say that he was a Russian dancer. He, his, he, his blood was purely Polish. Polish mother, Polish father, happened to be born in Russia. Did not mean well, he was a Russian citizen, but he was Polish.
0: Thank you. I will put that into my notes. <laughs> Microphone. All right. So now we are going to make this transition. Um, Mr. Newmyer will go over to the opera house where he will be with his dancers. Last looks at this amazing piece. And I'm introducing Lauren Chadwick. Lauren, do you want to take this seat here? And I think we need to do a little dishwashing and housekeeping here if you want water. You
2: I see. cannot imagine water. a more intimidating person to follow <laughs> than John Newmyer. <Noma. laughs> But let me just say thank you so much for
0: being available. Oh, thank you. And I think there's just this, uh, we can make this really coherent, because this amazing week ahead of us is about an enormous group of dancers, an enormous company coming all the way here, and I think my first my first question for you is your role at San Francisco Ballet is company manager. It can be very difficult to sort out if you open to that page in your program. There's a general director and a general manager and an executive this and a company that and Where do you fit in?
2: (laughs) Um, I pick up just about everything else. Um, My job, obviously, as the company relates to our company of dancers. um, I call myself really sort of the welcome party when our dancers join the company for the first time. Um, Usually, in most cases, when a new dancer joins us, I'm the first person that they come in contact with. And a lot of times, that means for our dancers, sometimes it's their first time to the United States. Sometimes it's their first time to San Francisco, and we want to make sure that their transition to San Francisco ballet is something that goes quite seamless. Um, In many cases, that means for our foreign dancers that I'm knee-deep in their visa application to allow them to be able to work in the U.S., In other cases, it means just making sure that they find an apartment in the right part of town. Um, But we just want to make sure that they feel welcome, uh, both to the company and the city of San Francisco. My other big job has to do with touring. Um, I am the touring manager when the company goes on the road, and in this case, uh, bringing in Hamburg Ballet, um, myself and my assistant in our department are the main liaisons between San Francisco Ballet and Hamburg Ballet.
0: So let's backtrack a little. Last summer, Well, the company tours somewhere every year. Mm -hmm. This year, they seem to have made more extensive tours, gone further and done more things than in some other years. Um, Jump into that, but uh, one of the high
2: points was actually going to Hamburg. Absolutely. Um, we started talking with John Neumeier, uh when he was last here in San Francisco to um, recreate The Little Mermaid with us. And we sat down and had a conversation about what would it be like for San Francisco Ballet to perform in Hamburg. And then the discussion said, well, what would it be like for Hamburg Ballet to perform in San Francisco? It's a very um, unusual circumstance. Many of you who have uh, frequented the ballet for many, many years know that the last time that we really presented a visiting company was our 75th anniversary when we presented the National Ballet of Canada, Ballet de Monte Carlo, and New York City Ballet. So it's been quite some time. Um, It's something very unusual. Obviously, we want to make sure that our dancers have as much time on the stage as possible. So um, it's sort of difficult sometimes for our dancers to give up their stage time because they want to stay in great shape for our audiences. Um, But it's a really, really extraordinary opportunity to bring in dancers from another company, to watch them work, to watch their process, to watch their rehearsals, and then, of course, to be a part of their final product. We felt the same way being in Hamburg itself. Um, it's Every company is very different. Um, we were very lucky to have been there during a time when we were able to see a lot of Hamburg's own performances. Um, the first part of our tour to Hamburg involved four of our own dancers, our principal dancers, uh, Teet Helimetz, uh, Yuan Yuan Tan, Sarah Van Patten, and David Carpetian. They traveled to Hamburg a week before the company, and they uh, took on their roles that you saw them here in The Little Mermaid, they took them on with Hamburg Ballet. So they performed along with the rest of the company and it was very interesting hearing them speak after the process was over, asking them what was it like to work with a different company, how were the rehearsals different, what was the process like, Um, because most of them have been with the company for many, many years, we have one way of doing things here at San Francisco Ballet. So it was really interesting to hear their take about how it felt a little different and what their process was. Um, And then after they performed, then, well, once they were in rehearsal, then our company uh, arrived. We brought about 30 dancers and about 20 staff members, so 50 of us in all. And that's about a little less than half that what we normally bring when we tour. So it was a a very small group. And then we were able to be there. We arrived the same day of their performance of The Little Mermaid. And then while we were in Hamburg, we watched... um, I think two or three others of John's full-length ballets with his company before we performed as well. So it was very, very different in terms of their schedule. And then what did you perform? I can't we remember. We did a mixed bill. I know it's, we did so many things over the summer. We did a mixed bill. Oh, I know we presented within the golden hour. We did a continuum pas de deux, uh, and we did raku. Oh, that's right. And
0: so I, raku. I think yes. it's important raku. to underscore because... This is a little editorial comment. Raku is so theatrical mm-hmm. and so um, laden with special effect and drama and the unusual music. <clears throat> it was my projection that it would be well-received by the European audiences, and I wonder if it was.
2: I think it was. It was interesting. Um, I, I think there were some people who thought, hmm, I, that wasn't what I was expecting. But I think, um, for the most part, the audiences were very, very receptive of the piece. And I think, of course, because it is such a vehicle for, um, for Yuan Yuan, that having seen her in that role of the Little Mermaid just a few nights before, I think most people were, were really very taken by her particular performance in that role the
0: company went all over the place Um, Moscow figured into it and who went to Moscow and what was that about
2: Well, um, once we had already committed uh, the company, the smaller group of dancers, to go to Hamburg, we got this very exciting offer from uh, the Bolshoi. And Sergei Feline, who is their new artistic director, wanted to put together um, an evening of visiting companies doing new work. And this was also for the Bolshoi, a very new and exciting prospect. They, I believe they had hosted visiting companies before, but they were really looking for companies that would produce... Um, Interesting, modern, and diverse works. Um, So we performed right after we did. We performed in Hamburg. Then an even smaller group of dancers. We flew to Moscow, and we were sort of trying to fit it in within this schedule. So it was actually quite a whirlwind because we left from Hamburg that morning, flew to Moscow took a bus ride into Moscow, which if you've ever been to Moscow, the traffic is like nothing you've ever seen. And so we sat in traffic for forever and we finally made it there. And then we got right into the theater that night and we had an orchestra rehearsal. And then the next day we had a dress rehearsal, a performance, and the next day another dress rehearsal for a different set of ballets and then a performance that evening. And then we flew back the next day. So, <laughs> it's, it's um, I don't even remember what we did. I don't remember <laughs> what I ate or where I slept or, <laughs> um, especially, if, you know, Moscow's about a 24-hour time difference, so, um, yeah, it was, but, you know the idea of being able to work with the Bolshoi and perform with the Bolshoi, it's an absolutely once-in-a-lifetime experience. You know, for me, it's... Me, personally, it's one of the highlights of my career, and I cannot imagine that our dancers didn't feel the exact same way.
0: And your actual, just nuts-and-bolts role in all of this is, what, tickets and schedules and...
2: It's everything, especially when we go... I mean, when we go to Moscow... um, Pretty much everyone except for, of course, our Russians and our Brazilian needed a visa. So I was on the phone or up at the Russian embassy every day for about six weeks um, getting visas for everyone in our entire group to make sure that we'd be able to enter and exit the country. And then um, we have other members of our company, in this case the Russians, or other nationalities who are required to have visas to be able to enter Germany. So we do different visas to enter different countries. And so as you can imagine when you're dealing with sort of the, the bureaucracy of, of politics and of, and of the, the real paperwork of the visas, um, it's something that not only is it painstaking, but it has to be absolutely precise. Because if something goes wrong, you are halfway around the world in an airport, and you're the one when when the dancer or the staff member is being stopped by immigration and can't get through, you're the one that people look to. So you want to make sure that nothing goes wrong when you're at that airport so that you can get through to finish out your performances. It's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, um,
0: I, So many aspects of touring are just, it's sort of a big circus, I know, with so many moving parts. Uh, Step back a couple of steps, and how does a person like yourself end up with a job like company manager of a major ballet company? Where, Where did you start in this world?
2: Well, I've been with San Francisco Ballet for, it'll be three uh, three years in April. Um, my background personally actually is as a stage manager. Um, I lived in New York for many years. I was a stage manager on Broadway, off-Broadway, um, stage managed opera for many, many years. And that's actually what brought me to San Francisco in 2004 was I began working as a stage manager with San Francisco Opera. Um, I worked there for about six years. I loved the company. And during my time with San Francisco Opera, I was lucky enough to also work as a stage manager with San Francisco Ballet on the 75th anniversary as well as on their production of Swan Lake. So I knew the company, I knew the dancers, and I knew that it was a place that I wanted to work. And I was very, very excited when this opportunity came to pass because for me it was the perfect marriage of my background um, in arts administration, as well as my background as a stage manager. And, you know, nothing really prepares you for the role of being a company manager or a touring manager. Um, you just have to sort of be kind of born with the right set of skills and hopefully the right personality to be able to deal with, with whatever comes up.
0: For those of you that don't realize it, a stage manager, um, the, the, the skill set the resume of a stage manager is an extraordinary thing and I will disclose my daughter is in that world so I am very uh, I've proofread her resume (laughs) Um, you have to be extraordinarily detail-oriented you have to be able to multitask like nothing else Um, and you have to be able to both be in the middle of the forest, mm-hmm. and you have to be back looking at the forest all at the same time.
2: Absolutely. And I think it's also about um, sort of being um, calm under pressure, I think, is the biggest thing. As you can imagine, when you're sort of the uh, the mom, in a sense, when you're traveling, as, you know, in most cases with 110 to 130 people, then uh, everyone's <laughs> looking at you. You know, we always laugh because... Oh, sorry. When we are... Um, when we're traveling through the airport, I have to make sure when we're transferring flights or when we're arriving at our destination, I have to make sure that I'm at the front of the line, always, because I know that everyone else will just follow the person in front of them. So if the person in front of them doesn't know where they're going, they will lead the entire group in the wrong direction. (laughs) It's amazing, and they all say to me, you know, Lauren, when I travel by myself, I can, I, you know, I can do everything, but when we're when we're in a group, I just, I, I just know Lauren's going to get me there. So, you know, they will just, they won't look at signs, they won't look at gate numbers, you know, and it's everybody, it's all 130 of them will just follow the person in front of them. So you always see me, and I've got all my papers out, and they all say, San Francisco Ballet, because I don't want anybody to get lost, and I'm standing, you know, if we get to a place in the airport where the The fort could go left or the fort could go right. You know, I'm there looking at every person going, gate 22, gate 22, gate 22, you know, (laughs) all the way down the line and just praying and hoping that everybody makes it to gate 22.
0: (laughs) So after Moscow and Hamburg, then the company did... um, I'm sure you came home at some point, but you... We didn't. Well, we, we
2: came home for two days before we flew up to Sun Valley, Idaho. And we were there for nearly a week. And then we flew home and then...
0: And then you went off to England. Yes,
2: and then we were in London for three weeks, and then Washington, D.C. for about a little over a week.
0: I think that one of the things that... Um, keep my eye on the time, and I'm sure that the folks might have questions for you, so we'll save a few minutes. Um, taking the dancers who... Um, well, I, I imagine it going a little bit like a swinging door. They come from all over the world, really, to this company. Mm-hmm. But then they this is home base the opera house which is one of the great theaters of the world mm-hmm. is home base and then they go to these other places how do those adjustments occur and are they more or less painless
2: well it's interesting you know we always talk about trying to sort of be be as malleable as we can when we're on the road but really our goal is to try to make things as close to home as possible you know we bring a lot of our same crew so that our backstage setup is as close as it can be to here, so that our dressing room signs look the same, so that for the most part the dancers have a sense of security because they know that things are going to be labeled a certain way and they know where they're going to be able to find their, the same things that they would have when they're at home. One of the things
0: I know, we're um, <laughs> sort of veering into more production um, areas, but the floor... For instance, is something that the co- I know the company travels with their own floor. It's something that basic. And when they get to the European opera houses, many of them, the stages are raked, which has got to be an incredible channel. <coughs> oh
2: sorry. Um, well, we tried we always bring our own floor. Oh, Mary, I'm sorry. Oh. <coughs> sorry. So when we travel, we almost always bring our own floor. I know when we were at the Bolshoi, the stage was raked. And that was quite difficult for the dancers, only in that, as I said, we flew in, and then we had a rehearsal that night right before we went into the performance. So there wasn't a huge amount of time. Now, the good thing is about both the Hamburg tour and the tour to Moscow is that the majority of those dancers that we brought were our principal dancers. And so a lot of our principals um, will do what we call guesting or guest performances throughout the year so they may go off and even during our regular season if they like for instance right now we're in rehearsals for Cinderella but if we have dancers who maybe aren't dancing in Cinderella and obviously they're not dancing on the Opera House if given the opportunity maybe they will take a performance in Europe somewhere or take a performance somewhere in South America or somewhere else in North America So they are very used to sort of showing up at a theater and figuring out what they need to figure out in order to be able to dance on the different stages. But when we travel as a company, especially when we're in a new house, and in particular if we're doing something like a full-length ballet, 99% of the time we are going to bring our own floor. So that means the floor that we lay down. So there's an actual floor of the stage of the opera house. And then on top of that floor is our basket woven sprung floor that the dancers dance on. So we have a touring floor and then we have a floor that we use at the house. So we will bring that touring floor with us. And then that usually takes up an entire container that travels overseas, or it will take up an entire truck if we are driving down to Chicago or Orange County or New York, Um, and then we spend a a full afternoon just laying that floor.
0: Speaking of questions, does anybody in the audience have questions for Lauren before we get too far gone? Yeah. Let me repeat the question. How do you manage the languages?
2: That's a great question. You know, um, we are very fortunate. You know, those of you who have traveled, you can sort of see that um, in most cases... English can get you by in a lot of places. In Russia, that was not the case. Um, We were fortunate that the Bolshoi provided us with three interpreters, and those interpreters were on call for us from the time we stepped in the theater at 8 o'clock in the morning to the time we left at midnight. And um, So in that case, we had um, people who were with our stage manager when they were getting the show called at the top top sequence of the show. So I always laughed because... um, um, to get the show started, it took about four different people. You know, it was one person telling one person who told the next person who told the next person who told the next <laughs> person. And, so, um, and then even when we were doing our our lighting sessions or our orchestra sessions, we'd have to have somebody standing next to our conductor, Martin West, so that if Martin had notes for the orchestra, you had someone interpreting that into Russian to give notes to the orchestra. Um, so, and so of course, always, especially when you're on such a time crunch, you know, you, you just sort of have to, you know, give, give to the conditions that you're under and say, you know, it just, it's going to take as long as it's going to take because you want, of course, the information that's passed along to be as concise as possible. How helpful were our Russian dancers? They were very helpful. (laughs) Um, so, uh, Actually, this is very funny. So when we arrived at the airport in Moscow the the bus driver dropped us off probably as far away from the terminal as possible. You know, it was like seas and seas of cars and people everywhere. And we all had two bags apiece because we had just come from Moscow and all the dancers had their luggage. And we all get off and we all have two bags everywhere. And in addition, because we had to fly with everything, myself and our technical director and our general manager had four other pieces of baggage in addition to our normal, too, because we had had to travel with costumes and everything else. And so we, we just trusted that we would arrive at the airport and we would be able to get some sort of a cart to help us. And we were dropped off in a location where there was nothing Nothing at all. And we didn't have enough hands. And so I look over and I see this gentleman with a luggage cart. And it looks like he's putting things into a car. And I grab Gennady, one of our our principals, and I say, get that guy and tell him to, we need that luggage cart. Gennady, I don't care what you have to do, you get that luggage cart. (laughs) So he goes over and barters with the man to get us the luggage cart. And then so we stack the luggage up. It's about almost, you know, up to here over all of us and we're driving it and, and it's got one sort of bad wheel and the wheel's kind of spinning and we're doing this and, and you know it was just sort of like thank, thank, you know, mm-hmm. thank goodness that we had someone who spoke Russian who could help us in that situation or else I'd probably still be in Moscow <laughs> trying to get the luggage into the airport Lordy, somebody else? Yeah
0: Question is about the shoes that the dancers wear. Of course, the principal. Well, all of the women have point shoes that are very carefully unique to each mm-hmm. woman. Um, how do they? How do the shoes interrelate to the floors? Does is there a concern about? the 1% of the time that they're not with our own floor?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you talk to any dancer, um, as Mary said, all the dancers sort of have a different technique that they use to be able to prepare their shoes. Um, There's actually some great videos that you can watch on on YouTube. I know New York City Ballet just did a fantastic video about um, different, it was last year, but they about the different sort of techniques that people use to prepare their toe shoes. Um, When we bring even when we go on tour, all the women, you know, everyone will always pack at least one, at least one, but usually more like three to four pairs of their toe shoes in their carry on bags because you don't want to show up and have your luggage lost and then you don't have your shoes. And the most important thing for our dancers, our women dancers, is to have their shoes. Um, And then every floor will be a little different. A lot of it, they will change um, the nature of their shoes based on the type of of dancing that they're doing. Um, And depending on how, a lot of times it also depends on what the shoe needs to look like for the costume as well. There's different types of um, matte surfaces versus glossy in terms of the shoe itself. But um, most importantly, I think what you're sort of talking about is a lot of the women have different techniques about whether they, sometimes they will burn the end of their toe shoe or they'll pull out the shank, you know, the sole of the shoe, or they will hammer it down or they'll break the shank. So everyone sort of has different way, different sort of things that they'll do to um, make the shoe exactly what they need. Um, but I'm sure our shoe, our shoe administrator, Sherry LeBlanc, would probably know exactly. But most of our women will go through a pair of shoes per performance. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, I think we have time for one more question. I keep looking to see if somebody on this side of the room has a question. Go ahead. Oh, that's in two and a half minutes. That, yeah. Why does the company go on tour?
2: the The purpose of the company going on tour, as Helgi will always say, is more performances, more performances, more performances. Um, we get, as you know, a quite a, a quite a large amount of performances here in the Opera House, but during the months of May to the beginning of December, the Opera House sort of gets turned over to the San Francisco Opera, and we don't really have the availability to do those performances. So the biggest thing is Helgi wants our dancers to have as many performances as they can during the year, and also... As all of you know, San Francisco is an internationally recognized company, and every time we go overseas and we perform at these major houses and reviewers see us and they say, wow, San Francisco Ballet, that is an amazing company. It just continues to raise the profile and show the rest of the world what we already know.
0: (laughs) I wish we could keep going. This is wonderful, Lauren, and we will definitely ask you back. Thank you so much.